You're listening to a University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, the third of three keynotes from the final In Search of Transcultural Memory in Europe conference. The conference, entitled Locating and Dislocating Memory, featured more than 80 speakers across 22 panels over three days in University College Dublin in September 2016. This podcast features Professor Michael Rothberg from the University of California, Los Angeles. His lecture, Inheritance Trouble, Transcultural Holocaust Memory in the Mirror of Migration, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This uh, paper I'll be presenting comes out of a co-authored study about migration and Holocaust memory in contemporary Germany that I'm working on with Yasemin Yildiz, who is a scholar of migration in the German context. That's what this is coming from. It also is related in some ways, as, as you may see, to another book I'm trying to finish, which is on what I'm calling the implicated subject. And that's an attempt to think beyond the categories of victims and perpetrators thinking about how we are implicated in histories um, that we don't participate in directly, that are going on perhaps distant from us, or that we in some ways inherit from the past. So this notion of inheritance, or as I'll say today, inheritance trouble, is at the center of a lot of what I've been thinking about. So without further ado. In summer 2015, a brief international scandal erupted out of a local German debate about educational policy. A group of Bavarian legislators proposed that all 8th and ninth grade students in the region should be required, as older students already were, to visit a Holocaust memorial site or a documentation center concerning the National Socialist past. A conservative politician, Klaus Steiner of the CSU, objected. Many students of that age are not emotionally or cognitively equipped for such a visit, he claimed, Even more seriously, he continued, there are many refugee and migrant children in Bavarian middle schools, and it will, quote, take a long time before they can identify with our history. Children from Muslim families in particular have, quote, no access to our history and thus have no need for such a memorial site visit. Here was an article about it. Zotan Muslimische Schüler and Katzetbesuchen should Muslim students visit a concentration camp. Steiner's objection was roundly criticized by local politicians on the left, Jewish organizations, and the Israeli media. Ultimately, the Bavarian education minister promised to uphold the proposal for visits by ninth graders. Despite its failure to carry the day, however, Steiner's intervention illuminates one of the central debates about Holocaust education in contemporary Germany. How to transmit knowledge and memory of the Nazi past in a society transformed by the dislocations of multiple post-war migrations. Since the Steiner affair took place on the cusp of the large influx into Germany of refugees from Syria and elsewhere during the summer of 2015, the questions of transnational migration, transcultural memory, and national identity it raised have only sharpened in the meantime. Although Steiner was criticized for trying to exempt migrant, especially Muslim, children from Holocaust education, his basic assumptions about such children are widespread. If for Steiner, the presumption that these children are uninterested in Germany's recent history implies that they should be exempted from Holocaust education, for most mainstream German politicians, educators, and journalists, it is the same presumption of disinterest that makes the provision of such education necessary. 
In addition, such children are routinely described not only as uninterested, but as actively hostile to learning about the Holocaust and even as anti-Semitic. Thus, for instance, an article in the Berlin newspaper Tagesspiegel describing the Steiner scandal ends not with a condemnation of the conservative politician's objectionable proposal, but rather with a quotation of Interior Minister Thomas de Maziere's warning about the rising number of anti-Semitic deeds by radical Islamists. The logic of the article is clear. Steiner's proposal is off base, not because migrant children should receive the same educational opportunities as other children, but because they are in even greater need of the lessons of the Holocaust due to their susceptibility to anti-Semitic ideologies. My point in recounting this story is not to deny or downplay the existence of anti-Semitism among some Muslims in Europe, nor to suggest that all immigrant and refugee children are, contra Steiner, deeply interested in the history of the Holocaust. First of all, such accusations could be made more broadly. Anti-Semitism, the most authoritative studies demonstrate, exists in the middle of German society, and anti-Semitic crimes in Germany are committed 90% of the time by right-wing extremists, not Muslims. Additionally, despite the admirable official memorial culture that eventually developed in Germany, it would be a gross exaggeration to say that most mainstream Germans are dedicated to the study and remembrance of the Holocaust. Rather, my point is that the Steiner incident and the Tagesspiegel's rather typical press coverage of it illustrate a set of dominant assumptions that are widespread in contemporary Germany and beyond. The tenor of these assumptions is captured perfectly in a statement by a Turkish-German woman, Hava Jurgensen, who took part several years ago in a Berlin-based community project on Holocaust memory. Quote, we often hear that the topic of national socialism is not for us because we're migrants, just as often it's insinuated that in any case we are too anti-Semitic to be interested in this topic. Jurgensen's comments helped my co-author Yasemin Yildiz and I articulate two social logics that we see inflecting Holocaust memory in contemporary Germany. A migrant double bind in which religiously and racially marked immigrants and refugees are told that the Holocaust is not part of their history because they are not really German and then castigated as unintegratable and anti-Semitic for their alleged indifference to Holocaust remembrance. And the flip side, a German paradox in which ensuring responsibility for Nazi crimes seems to require preservation of an ethnically homogenous notion of German identity, even though that very notion of ethnicity was one of the sources of those crimes. By recognizing the force of such logics while simultaneously revealing their failure to describe the entire social field of remembrance, we obtain a new vantage point on Germany's much-discussed Holocaust memorial culture, which is regularly offered as a model for Europe and the world. Indeed, I want to understand the concern over Muslim immigrants as symptomatic of larger concerns about the transmission and inheritance of Holocaust memory in contemporary Germany and Europe, as well as about the future of a unified European project, a project that seems more tenuous than ever. At stake, then, in discussions of immigrants, anti-Semitism, and the Holocaust is not simply the question of how to transmit knowledge of the Nazi genocide, but how to create a meaningful connection to a collective past at a moment of generational change and demographic transformation. To put it in the terms of our conference, at stake is the possibility of transcultural memory in the face of contemporary social dislocations. 
Since the end of the Cold War, prominent intellectuals and a network of European institutions have placed memory of the Shoah at the center of the construction of European identity. But that project appears to some Europeans as threatened by the presence of millions of residents and citizens who are allegedly foreign to the Holocaust. As the population of Europe shifts, both through the natural sequence of generations and through mass migration, the continent, we might say, is experiencing a form of inheritance trouble. How can Holocaust memory be transmitted in such circumstances? Anne Rigney has argued that the challenge to a meaningful collective European memory may lie less in conflict and animosity than in the problem of, quote, generating a sense of connectedness between groups who have not traditionally figured prominently in each other's identity narratives or have been excluded from them, unquote. For Rigney, producing affiliation along new lines calls for new stories and not just the reframing of old ones, new stories based on more experiences as well as on the creative reactivation of the archive. Seen from this angle, migrant acts of Holocaust remembrance of the sort I will discuss today have much to offer beyond the simple refutation of charges of Muslim anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. Such acts of memory model alternative ways of recalling the past in the present and suggest more encompassing transcultural models of possible German and European identities than versions tied strictly to official protocols of Holocaust memory. They offer, in Rigney's terms, both new stories and a creative reactivation of the archive. And to return again to our conference keywords, they reveal that transcultural memory emerges precisely from the simultaneity of location and dislocation in acts of remembrance. So let me now uh, situate my discussion in a somewhat longer post-war history of memory migration and genocidal legacies, not anything like the deep history that uh, Astrid uh, gave us yesterday, but going back to the uh, earlier post-war period. I will then sketch the migrant archive of Holocaust remembrance that is at the heart of my project and focus in more detail on two examples. Although it is rarely remarked, the German and European focus on what uh, Theodore Adorno famously called working through the past, Aufarbeitung der Vergangenheit, developed against the backdrop of post-war Arbeitsmigration, or labor migration. What became known as the guest worker program in West Germany emerged out of a variety of wartime and war-conditioned events, including the loss of adult men during World War II, the economic miracle of the 1950s enabled by the post-war Marshall Plan, and later the sealing of the border with East Germany. On the basis of bilateral agreements between the Federal Republic and other states, the program recruited workers starting in 1955 from Italy, Spain, Greece, Morocco, Portugal, Tunisia, and Yugoslavia. But the greatest number of workers came from Turkey in the, year, in the years after a 1961 agreement that closely followed the building of the Berlin Wall. Turkish Germans, an umbrella term that encompasses a politically divided, that's been obvious recently, an ethnically diverse populace that includes substantial numbers of Kurds as well as some Armenians, now constitute Germany's largest ethnic minority with a population of approximately three million. What would it mean to bring together the histories of Aufarbeitung and Arbeitsmigration, the legacies of the past and the dynamics of the present? Except in specialized accounts of migrant cultures and histories, the question of how migration has inflected central areas of German life, such as coming to terms with the Nazi past, is seldom posed. 
Thus, for example, in an exhaustive 2002 survey of the history of memory in post-World War II Germany, the distinguished American historian Robert Mueller begins by remarking that, quote, on 8th of May 2005, Germans will commemorate the 60th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. By then, about 9 out of 10 German citizens will have been born since 1945. 10% or so of those living in Germany will be Turkish, Serbo-Croatian, Italian, Russian, Greek, Polish, or Spanish, at home in Germany, but with only the loosest connections to Germany's national socialist past. Although Müller's first sentences emphasize the multiculturalism of Germany's present, he goes on to make the surprising claim that the various foreign nationals he enumerates have only the loosest connections to Germany's national socialist past, a striking formulation indeed for people who would trace their origins back to Poland, Russia, Italy, Spain, and the former Yugoslavia, places with quite concrete experiences of national socialism. A brief look at the early period of labor migration reveals, reveals a much tighter connection to Germany's national socialist past than Müller assumes. Echoes of the past should not surprise us when we recall that remarkably, just 10 years after World War II, West Germany began to import workers from former allies, enemies, and occupied countries, as well as from the non-aligned. There were, accordingly, material continuities that linked the new arrivals to the National Socialist era. For instance, Italian guest workers arrived in Munich in the mid-1950s on the same train tracks where a decade earlier Italian forced laborers or Fremdarbeiter had arrived. These guest workers were, in addition, often housed in barracks that had previously held slave laborers in the industrial subcamps of the National Socialist economy. Indeed, the same camp barracks were used to house in succession German citizens doing National Socialist imposed labor service, forced workers from abroad, displaced persons at the end of the war, expellees of German ethnicity from Eastern Europe, and finally guest workers. Furthermore, the very language of the new guest worker migration could not help but recall a history that was barely past, as contemporaries were well aware. Paraphrasing a newspaper article from 1961 that takes up the term Gastarbeiter and contrasts it with the term Fremdarbeiter, historian Rita Chin writes, guest worker in this view rolled off the tongue more smoothly than foreign workforces and avoided, and avoided the tainted association of alien worker which the Nazis had applied to people used as forced labor, end quote. Meanwhile, at the Volkswagen factory in Wolfsburg in the early 1960s, guest workers were replaced forced workers on the assembly line, and the general director warned his employees, quote, not to speak and write about barracks and camps. The word camp can call up associations that in the interest of all involved, we would like to avoid. Migrants from different national contexts brought with them different relations to the German past. They were also often well aware of the awkwardness of their presence. Consider, for instance, the narrative that emerges when one former Yugoslavian guest worker recounts to the artist Margareta Kern what it was like to come to Germany in the late 1960s. We were all feeling slightly guilty for going to Germany. All of us were seeing the traces of the Second World War around us. There wasn't a single building that didn't have holes from the bombing. There were many old men without parts of body, hands, legs, eyes, and there were many old women walking dogs alone with red hats. This, on one hand, grounded us. We could see that there are no longer any SS soldiers around, and it is not like we saw in the partisan movies. 
Many people were, of course, nice to us, and we became friends. But in our people, a desire stayed to prove themselves, to be better than the Germans, to be an honor to the partisans who died fighting the enemy. This resulted in our people being the most respected foreign workers. They worked harder than others. They wanted to be better than others, better than Germans, and of course better than the Turks, as the Turks oppressed us for 500 years, and we definitely didn't want to be equal to them. In the memories of this former migrant worker, we find the farthest thing from a loose relation to the past. On the contrary, various historical tensions mark the woman's complex attitude toward being in Germany, including not just the National Socialist past, but the legacy of the Ottoman Empire. For this witness to German history, at least, the past was all too present in the haunting absences that marked the people and buildings of the post-war landscape. Not all immigrants, and especially not those from Turkey, necessarily would have had such direct links to World War II. But even for labor migrants without a personal memory of the war, being in Germany so soon after the National Socialist period and Holocaust would have been a source of anxiety because such migrants were entering a society with a recent experience of extreme hostility to various racially and nationally defined groups considered foreign, and they were entering at a time when very little working through of that history had yet taken place. As Joachim Putzmann, who worked in the Siemens factory in Berlin in the early 1960s when Turkish workers first came en masse to Germany, put it years later, after the appalling years of the Nazi dictatorship, it was my opinion that foreigners would not want to live here for an extended period of time. I was even astonished that they came at all and indeed helped us after all the evil for which we Germans were responsible. Putzmann's sympathetic memories represent a relatively rare example of insight on the part of majority society about the intersecting trajectories of migration and coming to terms with the Nazi past. Putzmann's comments also help reveal that beyond mere temporal overlap, the kernel of convergence between the histories of migration and coming to terms with the past lies in German society's ambivalent engagement with minorities and questions of cultural and racial difference. As the field of material and mnemonic interrelatedness sketched by these early examples of historical resonance suggests, Germany's post-war migration history has contoured the field of remembrance for those considered native as well as those considered foreign. On the one hand, non-migrant, majority Germans, have lived out their relation to the legacies of National Socialism among minority guests who have sometimes served as displaced remainder, reminders of the crimes of the past. And here's just one uh, small example, a little pamphlet, kind of little piece of paper that was found on the streets of Kreuzberg a few years ago. The, the fatherland is calling Turks our, our misfortune. So a very clear uh, echoing of uh, right Nazi anti-Semitic uh, slogans. On the other hand, for the guest workers and their descendants, as well as those more recently arrived Syrian refugees, Jewish immigrants from the former Soviet Union and Russia, among others, migration has meant life in a new national context saturated with the memories and material residues of a recent and terrible history. Another example of uh, an attack on one of the planned refugee homes um, just earlier this year, and there were something like 800 and something attacks. I mean, there's also, this is the flip side of the welcome culture, which is also quite prominent and important to, to recognize, but there's also this, right, kinds of echoes of, of, of the past as well. The historical resonance I have evoked so far has also catalyzed active engagement by some immigrants. 
Despite various forces discouraging their engagement, immigrants have produced underexplored archives of memory across different realms of society, from neighborhood organizations like this group of migrant women who did a project on on Holocaust memory, including visit to Auschwitz, um, to performance art comedians like Serdar Somunger, who does a parodical uh, reading of Hitler's Mein Kampf, and became very famous and became known now as an expert on Mein Kampf. Um, This is true, this is true. Um, From musical collaborations like that of the 80-something-year-old Auschwitz survivor Esther Bejarano with the migrant hip-hop group Microphone Mafia. They've done CDs together, performed together regularly. Um, To uh, uh, the figure of Doan Akanla, who both did Turkish language tours on his own initiative of the Cologne Nazi Documentation Center, has also written novels that touch on both the Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide. That's a kind of sub-theme of of our work here. Another more well-known writer is Afer Shenojek, whose novel Geferlische Verwandtschaft brings together, again, the legacies of the Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide. Uh, a political campaign that rose up against neo-Nazi murderers a few years ago uh, called Denazify Germany, think bringing into uh, visibility continuities right between past and present. And the thing I discovered most recently, the Paint Back Project in which graffiti artists uh, take uh, uh, graffiti of uh, swastikas and transform them into other kinds of images like this. And the guy who... Um, the guy who founded the, or who, who organized this project called Paint Back is the director of a youth program called Die Kulturelle Erben, in other words, the cultural inheritors. So this question of inheritance or heirs is, is actually quite prominent in this, in this discourse. Because of their non-canonical position within the dominant archives of remembrance, migrant memories can offer productive experiments with form, style, and content that prompt new ways of thinking about Holocaust memory at a moment of generational transition. In the remainder of my time, I want to look more closely at two provocative, provocative examples of memory work that bring together recent German histories, including National Socialism and the Holocaust, with the experiences of transnational migration. As both examples illustrate, such new non-canonical approaches often emerge directly out of engagement with canonical German sites of memory. These examples also highlight institutional and imaginative affiliations as well as tensions between migrants and Jews that suggest the possibilities and perils of transcultural solidarity. Finally, to take up Rigney's terms, we can say that the first example creatively reactivates the archive, while the second example is dedicated to telling new stories. My first example is a large-scale installation by the Frankfurt artists Ani and Sibel Usturk that was commissioned for the Jewish Museum Berlin's 10th anniversary exhibit. Apparently named after the popular 1982 Douglas Adams novel, The Life, the Universe, and Everything, the Uzturks, Das Leben, Das Universum und der ganze Rest, assembles a large archive of public images from the period between 1968 and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Portraits of politicians and pop stars abut photographs of world historical events, um, such as the Vietnam War. The images, on the whole, create a strong sense of a global public sphere, or better, a collective memory of global events and ephemera seen from a West European perspective. But closer inspection also reveals a degree of specificity beyond the global flow. 
The artists, who are sisters and come from a Turkish-German immigrant family, have also included a number of references to Turkish and Turkish-German history. Um, so here, for example, we see adjacent images depicting the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1974 and families of guest workers arriving at a German train station around that same moment. And there's a kind of visual pun here, I think, on immigrants as invaders. At least that's the way I read this. On top of this photographic background, the artists have hung a smaller number of faux-naive paintings, some including narrative text, that relate the autobiographical story of their family. The wall-sized installation moves chronologically from left to right from 68 to 89 as the family's story of migration from Turkey to Germany as part of the guest worker program joins a narrative of social change. In layering family history with world history, the Uzturks situate their work at the intersection of what Harald Welzer and his colleagues call the album of communicative memory and the lexicon of historical knowledge. Early in the installation's visual timeline, we find one of the most iconic images of West Germany's confrontation with the Holocaust, the 1970 image of Chancellor Willy Brandt spontaneously kneeling in penance before the Warsaw Ghetto uprising monument, the so-called Kniefall. It would be impossible to overstate the significance of Brandt's dramatic gesture, which was made all the more powerful by the fact that Brandt was not a former perpetrator, but had rather been an exiled resistance fighter. Brandt's gesture deeply influenced conceptions of how to work through history, both in Germany and on a global scale. It is a transnational lieu de mémoire par excellence. In the Uzturk's mise-en-scene, oh, there's a lot of French here, uh, we find the image of Brandt surrounded by an array of other icons, including the moon landing, the Kent State Massacre, the Red Army Faction, the Black Women's Movement, and Charles Manson. The Brandt image is installed prominently around eye level, which means that the photographers in the background of the picture are pointing their cameras directly at viewers, a self-reflexive framing that makes us aware of the crucial mediated backdrop of the Chancellor's spontaneous act. Without photography, it is unlikely this could have been an iconic moment. Directly above Brandt hangs one of the Uzturk's autobiographical paintings. A middle-aged woman holds a small baby on her knees. The juxtaposed images link Warsaw with what must be Istanbul, given that the older sister, Ani, was born there in 1970. As we move ahead in the timeline, this seemingly arbitrary juxtaposition catalyzes a question about historical responsibility. What does this Turkish infant on her relative's knees have to do with the kneeling German chancellor? Will she also inherit his burden? The fact that this infant will go on to become one of the artists who create this collage hints that the question cannot be unimportant. A further image joins the Brandt photo to suggest that the plethora of transnational German histories evoked by Das Leben, Das Universum can be usefully understood as post-national socialist as well as post-migrant. One of the larger family images consists of an unframed painting of the sister we had seen as an infant in Istanbul, now standing as an adolescent in front of a dour-looking Adolf Hitler. The installation of the painting cuts off the corner of an image of the 1986 Challenger explosion and abuts a photograph of Helmut Kohl and Erich Honecker taken during the East German premier's 1987 visit to the Federal Republic. What is Hitler doing in this historical constellation and in the family's photo album? The image not only depicts the key responsible figure behind Brandt's apology and the divided state embodied by Kohl and Honecker, 
It also brings to mind the migration scholar Kim Niha's comment that, quote, speaking about post-war migration to the Federal Republic of Germany means keeping Auschwitz always in the back of the mind. Living against the backdrop of this historical singularity gives the existence of the migrants living here and their will to remain a particular connotation and explosiveness. Haas' point is not that migration history is in any way in any way resembles Holocaust history, or that migrants somehow resemble the Nazis' Jewish victims, but rather that the legacies of the Holocaust and National Socialism constitute a significant part of the social landscape and thus the framing conditions in which migration to Germany has taken place over the last several decades. The Uzturks' self-portrait with Hitler, situated in a visual timeline that maps the conjunction of contemporary world history and German specificity alongside a collective and familial narrative of migration, strongly suggests such a framing. Yet, the particular resonance of the artwork also pushes understanding of this framing in an unexpected direction, and indeed reframes our reading of the image. Below the Hitler image hangs another autobiographical painting, this one depicting the same sister standing in front of two British policemen. Here a text clarifies how to read this segment of the work. It describes Ani Uzturk's 1987 trip to London on her 17th birthday. During the trip, she visited Madame Tussaud's wax museum. The Hitler image comes from that visit. Now, instead of representing a surreal fantasy of historical haunting, the self-portrait with Hitler seems to be rather that most banal souvenir, the tourist snapshot. The disturbing nature of the image does not disappear at this point, and many viewers may not even figure out the key to decoding it, but it takes on new resonance. There is, to be sure, a risk of relativization of historical specificities in this work as National Socialism takes its place between other political systems and technological catastrophes. However, I would argue, the work comments on such relativization as a feature of the way popular and media cultures deal with historical events and perhaps as a mark of generational distance. Within a globalized cultural memory and against a backdrop of historical change, Das Leben das Universum suggests events cannot remain the property of particular collectives defined by ethnic or national belonging. Memory is common property threaded through dispersed networks of association, even if corporations and nations attempt to commodify or copyright the past. At the same time, the Ozturk's artwork does not tell just any story of world history and consumer culture in the late 20th century. They layer a common, if superficial, and media-saturated history with the specificities of a migration story that unfolds in an overdetermined context where responsibility for the past has become a building block of national identity. In this scenario, Hitler is both a simulacrum available to a globalized class of tourists and a specter that, as Ha insists, stands behind racially marked immigrants to Germany. Similarly, Brandt is both the subject of a media event and an example of an ethical embrace of historical responsibility by someone not himself a perpetrator. The negative example of Hitler and the positive example of Brandt inhabit the migrant family album both because they are common currency in the global cultural economy and because they have been adopted by the family as part of their album, as part of their heritage. The novelty and the significance of the Ozturk's work lies here. They challenge us to rethink Holocaust memory and historical responsibility 
beyond ethnic and organic relations to the past and outside the binary of victims and perpetrators. That such a message found its home in the Jewish Museum Berlin strikes me as entirely fitting, for speaking across generations, ethnicities, and religions is precisely the task set for itself by that institution. In dislodging the images of Brandt and Hitler from a narrowly national history, the Uzturks implicitly contest the restriction of Holocaust memory to ethnicized property or inheritance. Hakan Savash Mijan's 2008 play Der Besuch, The Visit, first performed at a post-migrant Berlin theater, explicitly reflects on property and inheritance at the intersection of migration and Holocaust history. In moving but also comic and often absurdist fashion, Mijan's The Visit tells the intersecting story of two families, one Turkish-German, the other Jewish-Israeli. Set on a hot summer day at the beginning of the 21st century during which there is a threat of the explosion of a recently discovered bomb from World War II, the action takes place in the Kreuzberg neighborhood close to where the Berlin Wall once stood. While the legacy of the wall resonates, the play primarily explores the link between restitution and memory and the, potential, the potentially explosive haunting of the war. A mother and son, Ada and Eyal, have come to Berlin from Israel to sell a piece of reclaimed land inherited from Ada's German-Jewish father. Their journey leads Ada to narrate memories of exile and deportation that are filtered through an ironic, minoritarian sensibility. As Ada recounts, I have a photo in the living room cabinet of my father. He fled at the last minute. His mother stayed in Theresienstadt and died from typhus. He planned never to come back and live in Germany, but he always said, those damn Germans, everything they do, they do better than all the others. He only flew with Lufthansa. He always shaved with a brown razor. Such disconcertingly rapid shifts between traumatic, the traumatic and the comic characterize Mijan's work and suggest the affective translations that can take place in intimate intergenerational transmission. Such translations do not deny the hold of the past, but use humor to reinforce its power. They suggest that comic distancing may be a strategy that creates the possibility of transmission in the aftermath of such a difficult legacy. This use of the comic, however, violates German standards of seriousness with respect to the commemoration of Jewish victimhood and suggests, in the context of the play, a cross-minority solidarity in irony. Besides offering insight into the intimate realms of traumatic inheritance and ambivalent identity formation, this non-realist play also has a precise public historical context. Using the occasion of a post-wall restitution claim to bring forward ambivalent memories of German-Jewish existence, the visit recalls Dandiner's insight that the end of the Cold War and the reprivatization of property throughout large areas of Europe have had a cascading effect on remembrance. Quote, the land register becomes an arsenal of memory, of a, of a memory complex extending further back beyond the post-war socializations. They disclose so-called Aryanizations of property carried out but a few years earlier, lying right beneath, unquote. Diener understands this process of disclosure as fundamental to the constitution of World War II and the Holocaust as foundational events in a uniting Europe. Yet in a different essay, Diener declares himself uncertain whether a German citizen of Turkish background could relate to this history. 
In the visit, Mijan addresses precisely this issue, albeit without offering easy answers. The central conflict of the play, a form of inheritance trouble not foreseen in Diener's discussion of memory restitution and European unification, emerges here. Ada wants to sell the land she and Eyal have inherited to the local Islamic community, which plans to build a new mosque there. Ada, in turn, wants to use the money from the sale to build a new house of her own in Haifa, with which she also hopes to entice her son to remain with her. This scenario already suggests the way that post-war entanglements have complicated the archaeology of memory Diener assumes in his account of European unification. But Ada and Eyal's restitution claim also stumbles upon a further complication. Their land is occupied not by the descendants of those who might have profited directly from Aryanization, but by an old Turkish man, Ilhan, who has planted a tomato garden there, from which he earns his living along with the sales of fake pieces of the wall and kitschy Soviet memorabilia. It's based on a true, true uh, person, actually. In Germany for 39 years, Ilhan declares himself no longer a guest worker, but still a guest. Yet, however tenuous his belonging, his activities show him to be well integrated into the German economy, in particular into its economy of memory. In selling the land from beneath Ilhan's feet, Ada will take away both his livelihood and his chance to return to his olive orchard in Turkey. The play complicates this confrontation by adding a further twist. The Israeli son Eyal has unknowingly met the granddaughter of Ilhan, Melike, from Kumbach. Stifled by the small town life of the German provinces, Melike has come to Berlin to seek out her grandfather because she hopes he can give her money to set up a nail salon in Istanbul. This would no longer be the case, I think. Eyal, an aspiring artist, falls in love with Melike, and after some charmingly pathetic attempts at courtship, his love is partially reciprocated before the relationship quickly falls apart. In the scenes between Eyal and Melike, Mijan uses a non-realist compressed time to move rapidly and with little transition between the stages of their affair, an amusing but jarring technique that suggests both the attractions and the difficulties of this Jewish-Muslim-Israeli-Turkish-German relation. The interest of the visit consists in its manner of staging a multi-sided dialogue about historical legacies that does not prematurely seek resolution and reconciliation, but that also does not fall into cliches of cultural conflict. To be sure, Mijan does evoke commonplace discourses of victim competition. As Ada says to Ilhan after recounting her father's Holocaust story, my pain is bigger than your pain. Additionally, the play clearly references conflicts both within and beyond Germany, such as those over the building of mosques and over other occupied territories and olive orchards contested by Jews and Muslims. But the visit displaces and disarms these references to contemporary conflicts. It does so by integrating them into a story of two families that breaks with explanatory frameworks that attempt to establish who belongs where and to whom. As Ilhan says to Melike, we always dream of the place where we never were. Dispossession is real, the play suggests, but claims to property will not make it disappear. The visit thus presents a vision of contemporary Germany in which remnants of the past, walls, bombs, and traumatic memories resonate with each other and with the new conditions of the present. In their different ways, the experiences of Holocaust migration and political transformation at the stake at stake in the play all fundamentally erode the taken-for-granted conditions of inheritance and mnemonic transmission. 
Yet what remains is not a loss of historical consciousness and responsibility, but new forms of cross-ethnic implication in the past. Nobody owns these histories, but nobody can escape their pull either. So I come to a short conclusion. What do these examples of migrant engagement with National Socialism and the Holocaust teach us about the process of confronting the past in contemporary Europe? My argument is that they model an ethics of memory appropriate to contexts in which historical distance and cultural diversity seem to challenge the usual lines of mnemonic transmission. Prominent theorists of memory, including Paul Connerton and Avishai Margalit, suggest that migration erodes the grounds of memory or of ethical memory. And Dan Diener has worried that opening up German identity to immigrants entails a slackening of responsibility for the Nazi past. In contrast, both the Uzturks and Mijan demonstrate that National Socialism and the Nazi genocide occupy a significant place in multicultural Germany. At the same time, the work of these artists does suggest that public memory is undergoing an important transformation. In the face of contemporary transnational dynamics, it will be difficult to maintain the Holocaust as the singular center and negative origin of a common German or European memory culture. Yet the Uzturks and Mijan imply in their different ways the status of canonical Holocaust memory is threatened more by generational change, the end of the Cold War, and developments in the media than by factors specific to immigration societies. Furthermore, the kinds of layered histories and conflicting claims that migrant memory makes visible suggest the undesirability of anchoring a nationwide memory, not to speak of a continent-wide or global memory culture, in the remembrance of a single and singular event. In place of singularity, migrant archives offer positive alternatives for renewing Holocaust memory culture. Some of these alternatives concern the form a renewed memory culture might take. Migrant memory we have seen foregrounds the multidirectional montage of allegedly unconnected histories, as well as the head-on or indirect confrontation with conflict. Both works I've discussed refract the memory, the memory of National Socialism and the Holocaust through a prism in which the legacies of genocide intersect with the Cold War, immigration, and conflicts beyond the borders of Europe. Their evocation of the palimpsestic nature of European space and its links to non-European sites complicates the Holocaust's status as unique and foundational for Europe without denying its ongoing significance. In addition, these works also hint at the need for alternative styles and protocols of remembrance. Both pieces I've discussed embrace the importance of irony and humor in facing the traumas of the past and the tensions of the present. They suggest that what Adorno called seriously working upon the past may require moments of comedy and even lightness that disrupt the ritualized solemnity that dominates the German model of Holocaust remembrance. The uprootedness of the migrant, something Adorno knew well, offers a strategic position from which to counter the organic, ethnified presumptions of many memory cultures and much memory theory. The migratory ethics of memory I have evoked actively assumes responsibility for transmitting Holocaust memory, but it refuses to reproduce the boundaries of a nation, continent, or civilization. In place of an ethnic imagination of inheritance, it offers us a productive form of inheritance trouble. Thank you.